You could say that Mary Elizabeth Coleman is part of a Republican revolution in Jefferson County. Since 2010, the GOP has made steady gains in a county that has been dominated by Democrats. After 2019, Republicans will hold every single legislative seat in Jefferson County. Coleman joins us next to talk about her victory over State Representative Mike Rebus and what her agenda will be in the Missouri House. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Lufius Alfa Romeo, offering test drives of the Alfa Romeo Giulia, the 2018 Motor Trend Car of the Year at Lufius Alfa Romeo in Fairview Heights. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio, joining me on this very chilly day in St. Yes, Louis. his colleague Joe Manis after a week off Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? Yes. There's, uh, I didn't know that that was a verb. <laughs> At my age, you can make it up. Fair enough. And our very special guest today, hailing from the beautiful northern part of Jefferson County. And South St. Louis County. South St. Louis County as well. I'm Mary Elizabeth Coleman, a newly elected state representative from the 97th. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for, for coming into, your, into the studio today. It seemed like uh, your race was at the center of the legislative political universe. Yeah, did, did... we got a lot of press, didn't we? I think that the race had a lot of attention because my seat... Um, was supposedly the tip of the blue wave back in February when the special election took the seat from a Republican seat to a Democratic seat, and happy to have reversed that trend. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Before we ask you about your life story, that campaign— <laughs> Well, we always do that for the first show. It's only fair. Just tell us okay. what the boundaries of your district are, because I, yeah. I, I, I often refer to it as a Jeffco district, but you're, you're right. It does have St. Louis County in it. Yeah, and the St. Louis County, it's about 17 percent of the district. They get a little touchy that they get forgotten, and I do live in the Jefferson County portion. Okay. And um, so it is Arnold from west of 55 all the way out 141 and then a little bit when those windy roads over down to Fenton to the county line and then take 30 all the way south to High Ridge and then up around Susan Park um, is is the boundary and the Merrimack River literally divides the district in two. Yeah and I as I was telling you in the green room my cousin unfortunately does not live in your <laughs> district he lives in uh, State Representative Shane Roden's district but I, I think you have to drive through it to get to there. Yeah, so, that's right. So that's fair to say. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I know, sure. that, I know, I know that you're a newcomer to state legislative politics, mm -hmm. but you are not a, a newcomer to yeah, local yeah. government. You bet. So um, I grew up in Austin area, an Austin suburb, and married into St. Louis region like so many Austin. people. Austin, yeah. Yeah, I'm the only one I know who's moved from Austin to Arnold quite happily. <laughs> uh, Chris and I were college sweethearts at SLU and then went to San Antonio for me to go to law school. We picked up three kids and moved home. And um, once we got back to the St. Louis region in 2009, 
um, settled in Jefferson County. Chris's family, he's like the ninth generation Jefferson County, and we need to be near family. So what, nine, nine generations, that means they moved there in like the 1700s or something like that? No, it was like, like 1820s. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's yeah, yeah. when They're there was the first big settlers. wave. Yeah. yeah, the Maryland Catholics on the frontier. Yeah, 1820s, 1840s. Yeah. That's right. So um, we picked up an additional son and then adopted a daughter and a son. I'm a taxable estate planning attorney by trade. So you have what, six children? That's right. Five sons and one daughter. And um, my background is in taxable estate planning and in the startup scene. So I serve on the board of Arch Grants and have served on the board of the zoo. And um, yeah, just really kind of coming from not necessarily a political background. In 2013, I was frustrated, like a lot of you might have remembered, Arnold had a lot of litigation happening. Yes. And I thought, man, we're all better if we take a turn. And uh, it's not exciting work, but I ran and we reviewed all of the policies and we got a strong city administrator in place. And it's not magic. The lawsuit stopped. Um, But I just decided to take one turn. I wasn't planning on running for state rep, honestly, but I can... I was running Tucker Allen, a legal startup, until we adopted our son in September of 2017. And I came home and was rocking the baby and watching that race. Um, And then I saw who we were putting up as a Republican Party and thought, the Democratic candidate is strong, he's young, he's energetic. And I don't know that the two guys who've thrown their hat in the ring can take the seat back and decided kind of on a lark to run. So to give a little background to our listeners of what Representative Alec Coleman is talking about, in, I guess it was... 2017, uh, the 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 state representative who represented the 97th, John McCarty, That's right. decided to resign to focus on a county executive run that he never actually undertook. Yeah. Um. I. I. Does he still live in Missouri? I think no, I heard he actually, moved to actually somewhere else. Yeah. He moved to Louisiana to take care of his mother, who's not doing well. Yeah. Um. So life intervened. Yeah. I was gonna say same phrase. And That's and true. and he was part of this what I would call Republican Revolution of 2010, where he unseated a Democratic incumbent along with Paul Wieland, along with Paul Kurtman, who lived who represented a Jefferson County district. And they were the first Republicans to represent Jefferson County in a long time. I would, I've, I've talked with a former Representative McCarty a bunch of times, really nice guy, also a really strong campaigner as well. So what happened was when he vacated the seat, there was a special election between Mike Ravis, the Democrat. It's actually Revis. Revis. He's actually corrected me that on that before. And who's the Republican nominee, by the way? David Linton. David Linton. Yes. And Revis won by a fairly small margin. And it... It signaled to me a couple things. Number one, that Revis was a good candidate, as you mentioned. Um, and the Republican seemed weaker than I thought he would be. I don't think he raised a lot of money. Uh, I think that he kind of yeah, lo- he kind of so- got he kind of got I, I don't know if he fit the district issue wise. I, I don't know what your perception was either, because I know you ran against him in a primary. <laughs> I as did. Well. So I want to I, yeah. I don't want to say anything negative about him. I think he's a really nice guy. But I do think that Mike just outworked him. He had a lot of energy. And um, David was a really strong and vocal supporter of right to work at a time when the unions were very energized and tied into that race. And it became almost a referendum on one issue. Okay, so fast forward to November. Um, That race, you're absolutely right. There was a lot of attention to it on whether or not it was going to signal a Democratic shift or not. Um, Apparently didn't. That's right. Um, I'm interested in your take on just why you believe that you won and what that signals going forward for your region as you head into um, the General Assembly in just a few weeks. Sure. So, I mean, I think that I won because 
and the same reason why Mike ran, won. I think I, that our campaign just outworked that campaign. My campaign knocked on over 20,000 doors. Um, I personally knocked the district three times. It was a tremendous effort to kind of get out and reach people. But also, the national story, Trump is very, very popular in Jefferson County. Um, and it's maybe more popular, or at least as popular as he was when he won in 2016. And Josh Hawley came and worked very hard in Jefferson County. And I think that that Republican message was all but a clean sweep across the county. And I benefited from that rise as well. Now, it's funny you mentioned clean sweep because in 2016, I was talking to Senator Paul Wheeland about the future of Republicanism in Jefferson County. And this is what he had to say, again, in 2016. I think years in the, in the future, let's say two years from now, I could see every Republican up and down the ballot winning, and they should win in Jefferson County, but they've got to work for it. And once we stop working for it, that's when you start seeing the Democrats come back, because whoever works harder will win. It doesn't matter on party, whoever works hard. I have to, I have to admit, when Senator Whelan said this, in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, he's just being overconfident. I, I think 2018 will be a tougher year. Um, he was almost 100% right. Republicans won every race in Jefferson County except for county collector, which is, right. we go back 10 years ago, is an unheard of result in, in many respects. Do you, you think it was the national environment that played a role in that? Or do you think it's just the Republicans have just become substantially better organized? Well, you know, so three things. I think we're better organized. You saw a tremendous outlift coming from the RNC and the state party, as well as the state house reps and yeah, HICC. Yeah, because I wrote about that, that especially, I mean, in Jeffco and in West St. Louis County and other parts of the state, but they were concentrated there. Yeah. There was like 11 uh, offices that were operated right. by the RNC. That's right. And I thought that was really intriguing. And while some talked about how much the National Democrats were doing. I don't think they were doing anything like that. I no, mean, those guys were knocking. I mean, really, between those 11 offices, 15, 16,000 doors a day between all of them with the volunteers, and then you throw in a Super Saturday. It's a huge outreach. So one is the, the organized effort. Um, the second reason I think that we did so well is the real winners of the primaries were, I, th I think, um, the Republicans because the Democrats pushed further to the left. And so you saw a lot of progressive candidates win nationally as well as in Missouri. And in my district, we are pro socially conservative, pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, and pro-union. And so people that have traditionally been Democrats find the national platform to be really hard to identify with. And with the primaries and with dealing with the progressive side of taking over the Democratic Party, they're going to have to learn how to deal with that in the same way that the right has had to address the Tea Party movement within its own ranks. And so as they're working through that, I think that there's going to be some pain for the Democratic Party, at least in the state of Missouri. How do you think the Republican Party has dealt with the Tea Party? So by dealing with it was the wrong word. What I should have said is the Tea Party has, who got elected within that first and second wave now have experience within the party. They have experience as elected officials, and they have a little bit more of an understanding of how to navigate the process of government. And so I think that it has tempered a little bit and has made um, strides to be able to say, okay, we're going to respect 
constitutional conservatives, but we're going to do it within the framework of what government is. The Tea Party brought in a lot of people who had no experience in government in the same way that the progressive movement has brought people in who have no experience in government, governing. And so as you get experience doing the job, I think you're able to navigate it a little bit better, and then that fleshes out throughout the party. So from that, from that context... When you look at what happened in the primary, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, with the right to work, the fight over right to work, I mean, Jefferson County overwhelmingly voted That's against right. right to work, voted, you know, to get rid of it. But and in many, and feel strongly about it. Right. And many yeah. Republicans elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, support right to work, not That's necessarily right. the Republicans, Jefferson County. But my point is. Yeah. And I you, voted for it for the record. OK. Yeah. OK. Well, see, and that's what's intriguing to me. That um, and you had Holly, who worked Jefferson County. I was down there several times with him. Yet he supported right to work. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like all this effort to get overwhelmingly anti right to work turnout in August did not translate in Jefferson County in November. I wonder what, why that was. So when and you talk to people going, at the doors going forward, yeah. And when I talk to voters, they. They were upset with me, frankly, that I didn't support right to work. I just thought that I'm sorry that I supported it, but I thought people were owed an honest answer, even though I knew it wasn't going to play well in the district. Um, and they respected that. And then also, it wasn't their top issue. The economy would be their top issue. Supporting conservative social values would be a top issue. And they saw how far left that the Democratic Party was going, and they thought, Meh, we're we're middle of the line or middle conservative, and so it's hard for me to vote for somebody with that D behind their name. And, and so I think that national trend is the big second reason. And I don't want this to come up as pejorative, but I've made the point before that union members are not often the most predictable voting block when it comes to voting for Republicans or Democrats. Absolutely. For example, for example yeah. in 2016, um, I've heard anecdotes that union members voted between 30 and 40 percent for Eric Greitens, who mm-hmm. ran on a platform openly mm-hmm. supporting right to work. Mm-hmm. And then in this cycle... Only one House member, Mark Matheson, who voted for right to work, lost his seat. And you can make an argument. Yeah, that's lo- a terror. I mean, he, the demographics yeah, of this, he should never won he, it probably. He, he, he almost won re-election, yeah. and that's a heavily Democratic district. So you could chalk that up to being a Democratic district and Democrats doing substantially better in St. Louis County. So the point I'm trying to make is by putting right to work in August, I think that a lot of the momentum and focus was taken away from unions to – quote unquote, take out people who supported right to work. And I think that the results kind of speak for themselves at this point. That message didn't seem to resonate. I mean, right. Now, I think that um, looking at it, just playing devil's advocate, I'm not advocating. I'm just looking at it, you know, from a distance. Um, I think that Democrats strategically, I think they might have been smarter if they had focused more on which candidates, which Republicans were had been for or against it. Mm -hmm. Like McCaskill never really brought it up that much against Hawley until near the end. And frankly, by that point, I think voters' views are kind of baked in. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of interesting to me just to watch from a distance. And uh, so now, now that you support Right to Work, I mean, there have been discussions about, and Jason just recently did a story a few days ago, um, where there's speculation, will the General Assembly take it up again or not? I mean, the general view, as Jason wrote, is that they probably won't. So I have not heard anybody talk about bringing it back up on the Republican side or in the majority. The only people that I've seen talk about bringing it up 
was as a campaign point to try to say they're just going to reverse it the way that they have done other things in the past. So if it comes up again, what are you going to do? Yeah. So as I was telling Jason in the green room, um, if Proposition A, the same thing that everybody just literally said they don't support, I'm not going to vote against my district. I think that that's not a conservative value to say you guys by 78 percent rejected doing the same thing. Um, but I, I do support economic development. And so where my heart is, and that's why I, I told people how I personally voted, right? So there's a difference between I'm now representing you and this is a proposition you have just said um, versus how I personally feel about the issue. Now, you know, you catch a little flack of people saying, oh, you're being lawyerly. I'm a lawyer. But um, that's not it, really. It's just it is really important that you're honest with people about who you are and then also that you're not doing something that they say, I'm not going to do. So when you're sworn in in a few weeks, yes. um, what are you going to push for? So as a new freshman, I think I'm going to do a lot of listening initially. Um, but one of the first or the first thing that I'm going to file is currently in Missouri, w girls who are underage can be prosecuted for prostitution um, before the legal age of consent. So they can also be prosecuted for truancy. So girls who have been caught up in sex trafficking or are victims of the sex industry. So I'm going to work to change those laws. Those are my that's my big first project that I'll be working on. Um, tort reform is going to be something that everybody's going to be talking about. I hope to be a part of that conversation. Maybe have a little bit more of a lawyerly, nuanced view of that. Although I'm not a litigator. Um, Though, you know, infrastructure is still a huge concern. Prop D failed, but we've got to find a solution there workforce development, all of those same things that the governor has been talking about. Um, there seems to be a nice alignment within um, the legislature and the, and the governor's office right now. That was going to be my next question because the former governor, Eric Greitens, had a notoriously fraught relationship <laughs> with the that's House a nice and Senate. Way of putting it. Fraught. I haven't used that word in a while, right. but I think that's a I think that's kind of a generous term. It was a bad yeah. relationship even before his scandal. Well, it, before he was sworn in. Even yeah. before he was sworn in, he was calling in even Paul Wheland, when he was on our show in 2016, after Greitens had won the nomination, expressed Kind of like he wasn't super excited about him because he didn't have bona fides on social conservative issues. He later said, like, you know, I'm going to try to work with him because it's a Republican governor or a Republican, leg Republican legislature. But obviously the relationship. Yeah, you know, Senator Wheelan is commenting on it publicly. It's not a great place no, to be. No, and the relationship really didn't improve. Yeah. I think people are more optimistic about Parson because he's been a legislator. He's talking about issues that I wouldn't say – are non-controversial because whenever you're talking about infrastructure, i.e. transportation spending, mm -hmm. i.e. possibly raising certain taxes. <laughs> well, he just lost. A, it's, a, it, it, yeah. it can have some detractors. But my point is there are issues that are not as like viscerally hot button as, mm -hmm. say, what Greitens was doing. Like right well, his to, whole style and tone, too, not just even the issues. I mean, everything about him is the antithesis almost of Greitens. Well, part of it is that he's comfortable Parsons comfortable dealing with the General Assembly. So, yeah. but you're 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 more, you're generally optimistic about the governor, the new governor's uh, relationship with the legislature. Is that fair yeah, to say? Absolutely, and every sign has been pointing to that he's happy to work with people. He's taking meetings with the electeds. Who are, he's taking meetings with people coming in. He's asking what priorities there are. His appointments are coming from people with experience. I mean, he just his tone couldn't be more different. So I look forward to working with him as much as. As I can. You know, his appointees just actually brought in back the uh, education secretary, Margie Van Dieven, after right. a, yes. a really 
again, fraught situation a year <laughs> Which ago. Which I think is just stunning. Now, oh, I was a little surprised. Yeah. yeah, That's stunning. It says yeah. something. Now, I want to use that as a jumping off point to talk about education for a little bit, because sure. I know that education policy is probably a vital issue in Jefferson County. I think people move down to Jefferson County for a lot of reasons. It's, a, it's an affordable place to buy That's a house. Right. It's often centrally located next to 55, so you can get to the city. I think the schools are generally seen as pretty good, but maybe not to the level of some places in St. Louis County. So what's going to be your overall philosophy when it comes to education, whether it be getting more money, whether it be changing education policy, whether sure. it be working with the now uh, returned uh, education right. commissioner? Well, so the Republican legislature, I think, doesn't get enough credit for fully funding the formula for two years in a row. You can talk about the formula being changed, but really it's just going back to the original formula enacted in 2005 with everybody's agreement on a decent cost of living inf- or cost of inflation index. So um, I-, I think we got to continue to do that to make sure people get the resources. My parents are both retired public school teachers. The school system is very important to make sure that we get that taken care of and people get the resources they need. Um, I have a daughter who has some special needs, and I have um, some other kids who um, also have some special needs on the gifted side of things from which we receive public we, our kids go to the public schools for. So we've mm-hmm. got kids in the gifted program, kids in which special needs. Which school district are you in? So oddly, and two, because the um, if you have an IEP, you get resources from the school district that you, the kid's home school is in. And if they have a gifted program, it's based on your address. And our kids go to a parochial school in the Windsor School District, and then we live in the Fox School District. So we need to make sure that kids get access to resources not based on geography. I have a kind of a strong example of that, why we have to be in two to school districts is a little ridiculous. It's a heck of a lot more convenient. But also people who do have special needs, um, the Fox School District has not been able to, I'm sorry, the Windsor School District has not been able to fully meet my daughter's needs. She has dyslexia and that's not a covered condition. And so we're having to pay out of pocket. Thank God we're able to afford to do that. But a lot of people haven't been able to do that. And so your access to resources, I don't think should be limited based on where your physical address is. So we need to make sure that we get that taken care of. I'm not as super familiar with Jefferson County's education infrastructure as St. Louis County, but has there been any talk about creating maybe like a countywide special school district similar to St. Louis County? Not that I have heard of, no. That's not something that's been spoken of at all. And there's a a wide range of availability based on which school district you're in. I mean, the special school district, without getting into the weeds here, the fact is that special school district in St. Louis County is very unusual nationally. It's a very unusual thing that, I mean, without getting into the weeds, there's different views on it. I mean, uh, on the concept. Not we're not talking about. Yeah. And, but but the point is, is that but many people like Jason, many parents like Jason have used it and with very good results. Right. And I was just going to disclose, as I did in the previous podcast with Scott Ogilvie, I. My son has services from the special school district in St. Louis County. Yeah, so, so we need, and we have pe- friends who live in Jefferson County who do not have access to so, to the special school district who have considered moving, or friends who live in the city who have had to move to relocate to be able to get their kids access to services that they can't otherwise afford, um, or there's kids who are in failing school districts who would like to be able to send their children to another alternative, but because they're not in St. Louis City or St. or Jefferson, or I'm sorry, Kansas City. They have no resources to do that. And so the idea that a child belongs to a district rather than a parent being able to get access to the best education for their kids, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me as far as where we're going. And if you look at, not to kind of get more philosophical, but if you look at what other countries are doing, 
other countries do fund even the parochial school systems. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do that, but France and Germany and Canada all send money to their parochial schools because they see them as citizens and that we're needing to provide for all of our citizens. And so that's a more progressive society doing something that I think is people would consider here very conservative position. So it's kind of an interesting take. So um, you, we mentioned right to work and how it's unlikely that Republicans are going to touch that issue again. But there has been talk about possibly uh, bringing back up so-called Clean Missouri, which is this amendment that had a lot of ethics-related things, but was primarily about state legislative redistricting. And the voters passed it. The voters passed it. With by 60, a wide margin. By 62 yeah. percent of the vote. I'm going to play a clip now from House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid of Springfield talking about how her caucus, which is admittedly in the super minority, is going to focus on trying to combat any efforts to change voter-initiated referendums, including Clean Missouri. I'm hopeful that the legislature won't, but you know, history shows that they do. When St. Louis raised their minimum wage, the legislature came right back and overruled it and said, no, you can't do that. So I am hopeful that it doesn't happen. But yeah, I do think that, that it might become a priority. And so that will be um, one of the my main priorities out of this office is to hold to the will of the people. Um, I think that it, the legislature should not go against what the folks tell us to do. Now, obviously, there are statutes and things that might need some cleanup, and that's always a conversation. Um, but the numbers were very clear that these issues are important to Missourians, and I think we need to adhere to that. So there's a couple of background things I want to mention before I pose the question to you. In order to change the new redistricting system in Clean Missouri, legislators can't just pass something. They would have to send it to the voters to vote on again since it's right. a constitutional amendment, which is a por- an important distinction from passing right to work again because hypothetically lawmakers could passed right to work and the governor yeah, could sign it. Yeah, because right to work was – it was ba- – I mean the thing to block it – was not a constitutional amendment, so it they could General Assembly could change it. But I think the reason why there's a lot of focus on the clean Missouri redistricting changes is there seems to be a lot more consensus among Republican legislators and some Democratic legislators from St. Louis and Kansas City who are primarily African American that the redistricting system that is in place now is not going to be super beneficial for for either one of those groups. So have you heard a lot of discussions about bringing that issue up in 2019 or 2020? Sure. So the first thing I'd like to say is a lot of what the focus on clean Missouri that I'm hearing right now is not necessarily about a legislative solution going through a petition and getting it on the ballot. It has been the court folk challenge, and I think that that's what people are talking more about is who's going to bring the lawsuit, what's that going to look like, will there be an injunction keeping it from going in place, So I think that that is going to happen. We're going to see a lawsuit challenging the provisions of Clean Missouri. Um, Well, but but there were some before also. Yeah. I I think we're going to see it upheld in large. Maybe some of it gets tweaked a little bit, but it's hard for, I think, a judge to overturn what everybody has already just voted on. It it could be a situation. I'm going to try to make this point very finely, okay? So there's been a lot of talk about the will of the people, but, you know, that didn't stop certain attorneys from challenging Amendment 2, which was the campaign finance amendment, which passed by a larger margin than Clean Missouri, but was admittingly very flawed. 
I mean, I'm not. I'm... No, it's been a mess, right? So one of my, I was fortunate enough to have Coro fellows on my campaign. And the very first task I assigned them was to pull up the MEC reports for all of the area districts to try to get donor lists, right? And they go to, to solicit money for when for to support the campaign. And they go back and they say, well, look, in 2012, say what you will about David Humphreys. I know he wrote a check for $50,000 to this guy. Now I went and look in at the 2018 reports and I see a bunch of different checks from a PAC. So it did the exact opposite of what its intent was. And I think we're going to see the same thing happen with Clean Missouri. It's going to drive money, although the money piece is such a small it's, portion. It's such a, mi- I mean, but, yeah, yeah, don't yeah, even I mean, get me started. My anyways, point for, my I'm sorry, point, we're going to go back to the redistricting. No, my point for bringing that about. up is, you know, I, and the interestingly, the successful lawsuit was driven by Chuck Hatfield, who often also happened to co-author Clean Missouri. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of the lawyer the so, lawyer du jour so in Jefferson City. in addition to making the point, like, you know, some voter-approved things, I guess, are held in higher esteem than others, what happened with that was they, they targeted specific aspects of that, and well, it and wasn't, and it wasn't yeah. completely thrown out. And I think there could be a similar thing that happens in Clean well, Missouri. Well, and I want to pivot, actually, and talk a little bit, too, about the broader ballot initiative process, which sure. I do also hear a lot about, which is... You see in California, for example, they'll often have many, many provisions, many, many ballot initiatives on their, the ballot to the point that the ballots get very, very long and we're legislating through the ballot. And so you'll get some really flawed things on that people are voting for. And like you said, they're maybe not so nuanced. They're maybe not so great. But somebody had enough money to go out and collect enough signatures and then had enough money to do a marketing campaign to get people yeah. to vote for it. And you know, I just got elected, so I don't want to say I think that legislators know better. But if the public forum is working right, the House especially should be kind of a messy place where people are really loud and vocal and having these big policy debates to try to get not to be Pollyannish, but to try to get to something that we can all live with. And it is. <laughs> so in the next couple of years, let's say the lawsuit's unsuccessful and legislators do decide to propose something that either completely eliminates or yeah. substantially changes the redistricting piece. Given what you just said about right to work and upholding the will of the people, <laughs> what's going to be your yeah, mindset, yeah. even though I understand that the situations are different and I also understand that there's some there's there, there's different political dynamics at play. Okay, What's so, going to be your mindset if that happens? Because I think the chances of it happening are pretty high at this yeah, point. Yeah, I think that there's going to be something coming back on the redistricting. And yeah. and not to keep going back to my kids, I'm a mom, and two of my kids are kids of color, and I share a lot of the same complaints and concerns about Clean Missouri's redistricting plan that the minority community holds. We're at basically proportional representation right now in the state legislature, and it's important to make sure that communities of color are represented. So. Through that lens in particular, I really do – the hypothetical challenge on a hypothetical situation and never knowing what the wording is, in theory, I support. Because we have a plan that starts at its base of assuming that this is a partisan issue. Let's do what we can to minimize the impact. And now this assumption is one person is going to start with it and we're going to have them draw – it's just going to always go to the courts. I mean, that's the ultimate thing. Everybody's always going to challenge it under Clean Missouri's redistricting because we're starting with a partisan platform rather than saying, oh, we don't think there's any partisan. And, and one of the things I think will be really interesting if this system remains in place, because I think the chances of it remaining in place even with a revote is, is reasonably high, is there is language in there that's aimed at protecting uh, majority black districts. But it doesn't say specifically, like, if you reduce – 
a district to say around 50%, which makes it possible for a white candidate to win that district. And it has happened. We've talked about this extensively. Whether that would trigger the language in there, I think that's going to be up to courts and judges to decide. Right. And where's that threshold and what is the standard? And all of that is completely unknown. And so I... My hope is that there is an alternative that comes out and that the argument is able to be made. But it's really, really hard to get even name recognition out, much less explain all of that. Yeah. So in the last few minutes we have left, I want to talk about uh, something else that we reported on. And that was kind of an influx of female candidates on both sides in Missouri. And one of the things that I've noticed nationally, there has been focus on, especially federally, a lot of women elected to Congress primarily on the Democratic side, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily a lot of Republican women being elected. And I thought that was interesting because in Missouri, as we were talking about offline, there have been a lot of women Republicans elected to state house and increasingly state Senate seats. I'm going to play a clip now from Senator-elect Cindy O'Loughlin, where I asked her if she thought it was notable to her that she's going to be the first woman senator to represent Northeast Missouri in the state's history. This was her response. I think a little bit too much in our society today, at least I think this is how people view it in our area. They want the person that they feel is most qualified. So I never went around and said, you know, I'm the first female. If I'm elected, I'll be the first female senator from our area. And I really don't focus on that at all. I think that we should always look at a person, look at their experience, decide, does that fit the position the best? And if it does, vote for them. I don't care, you know about any of those other factors. And I, I'm i old enough that, you know, that kind of thing really wasn't talked about much when I was younger. And we just did what we had to do. And so I think, I think that holds true now. I think we just do what we have to do. The reason I'm posing this to you is I've seen photos of you actually campaigning with one of your children. And I have to yeah, imagine- every day. I mean, every every just... single day. So I I do think, as much as I would like to say there's no difference between a male political candidate and a female political candidate, and I also understand that a lot of dads also do a lot of child care responsibilities, too. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are some— It's just different for moms, and and everybody can say it's not, but it is, and we all know it is. So Um, I want you to explain that a little bit. So it's hard to take off the lens through which you see the world, and I'm a mother of six, and I'm an attorney, and I'm— you know, my name is Mary Elizabeth. I have six kids. I'm Catholic. And um, so I can say that it doesn't have an impact or say, I, you know, Republicans typically do not like to play identity politics. Um, and and some women get really rankled and angry when somebody says, well, how are you going to do this job as a mom? And they say, well, nobody asks Rob Vescova that and he's got five kids and nobody asks Elijah Har that and he's got four young kids. Yeah. And, and, you know, there was, I I don't think this was serious, but, you know, when Nicole Galloway had her third child in office, there was rumblings like, how is she going to be able to do this job? Or is she going to resign? And, you know, she rightfully pushed back against that. No one asked Jason Rosenbaum, is he going to resign from his reporting job after his second son was born? (laughs) But continue. Yeah. But, but there is something different about moms and the job, um, And I think a lot of what people are really asking there, because everybody's their own protagonist, right? Everybody is really asking, can you take care of what you have promised me and take care of the responsibilities to your family? And so from that standpoint, I got really comfortable at answering that question with constituents at the door of how I'm able to do this job. Of course, it influences how I'm going to legislate that I have children because I'm so focused on the future. Um, I think that when you have children, your worldview does shift a little bit 
for, for fathers as well. You were never looking at school choice until you had children. And so our life experiences really do shift how we see the world. I mean, do you think that's a good thing for the General Assembly? And, yeah, I, I mean, do. will that affect? I mean, and as I said, well, there are other women Republicans in the General Assembly in the House, but there are more uh, women who are Democrats mm-hmm. in the Missouri House. I'm not actually sure that's true. Okay, I well, think it's pretty close. Okay. But I think proportionally is what. So the because well, it's a yeah, super proportionally, minority. Proportionally, I should. I, I was just talking about in raw numbers, but, can, right. but continue. Yeah, but but my point is. Do you see issues where there can be work across party lines? Absolutely. And you look at Gene Evans and shackling of pregnant women and raising the age of um, marriage in the state. There, uh, the, the truth of the matter is, and I said this on the campaign trail a lot, is a lot of what we do in the state legislature isn't partisan. Dealing with figuring out how we're going to deal with roads, figuring out how we're going to take care of our children. Criminal justice reform is very ripe for dealing with in this, this session. I'm hoping that some of those things come up. And I do think that women are going to be able to be leading that fight from both sides of the aisle. I don't think that it's going to be coming from just one or the other. And I just read an article in the Post-Dispatch about Holly Rader and Tracy McCreary are working That's on legislation about, uh, well, opioid addiction and changing the laws about HIV infection. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Actually, that was in in the back of my mind. Yeah. So I do think that a lot of that, it does sort of color the conversation. Um, But anytime we have somebody who is representing their district, who looks like their district, who comes from a place of similarity, there's my district has a lot of two working family households who have young children. I think it's good for the district. I think it's good for the state. So I think it's all net positive. Well, thank you so much for coming in when you're a representative elect. We will have you back yeah. when you're a state representative and actually doing stuff. But we were thrilled that we were able to talk with you today. So thank you again. Thank you. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Would... And follow Mary Elizabeth Coleman at, at M-E-A-C Coleman. Wow. You you knew exactly what I was going to ask next. You're 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 already getting very. <laughs> I used just to want this to get one. my handle in there very too. <laughs> well, we always make sure that our. Oh, kids... you do! I forget. <laughs> yeah. Well, follow her on Twitter. She's a good follow. And f- until next time, so long. Sponsored by Lou Fuse Alfa Romeo of Metro East.